For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply think they'll pay us like it's free advertising probably some free food if nothing else send it to yeah if they gave us a couple boxes honestly (laughs) i I don't want cash in hand out of a few free boxes from hello we'd love that and that would make this like doubly worthwhile Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Rain Stop Play. As England managed to somehow get thrashed in a winning cause, we give our first impressions of the first two T20s against the West Indies. Elsewhere, we'll take a look at South Africa's impressive start to the year as they beat a confusing India 3-0. England's women get scuffled by rain in Australia and Fowler Lamb finally gets the recognition he deserves. All this plus a quick look ahead to the omnipresent IPL a pitch inspection on the price of cricket, our favourite tweet of the week, and Zach's quick question. It's a packed pod this week, but first, let's say hello to the panel. Uh, Glenn's back from his trip between Wyoming and Iowa, and he's in Iowa. How are you, Glenn? Yep, I'm all right. Can thoroughly recommend the Lincoln Zoo in Nebraska, and that was the sole highlight of that 12-hour drive. So that's all I have to say on that. Brilliant. Glad to have you back. And Will Singh, how are you doing, mate? Hello, I'm very well. Good to be back. I played my first cricket of the year this week. And how did that go? Uh, we won by about 50 runs, but somebody did man-card us off the last ball of the innings, which I thought was a bit unnecessary in an indoor no league. <laughs> in an indoor league, you've had a man-card, great. Okay, well, that's a great start to the season. I'm sure if you play them again, there'll be a bit of beef. But good to have some cricket back on the cards on the panel. Uh, as I said at the top, we're going to start with the West Indies versus England. We've had two T20s now, played back-to-back on Saturday and Sunday. We've got three more to come. Uh, the series is tied at 1-1. Two fascinatingly strange games. I said to you, Glenn, before we came on, these are two sort of chaotic teams going at it. it it's been quite fun to start, actually, despite the hilarious collapse from England. Um, so what have you, been your first impressions of, of this series? Uh, England losing by nine wickets in the first and then winning by one run in the second. Uh, a fascinating start to the series, really. I, I'm quite enjoying it. It's it's a good cleanser after the Ashes. Yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it as well, actually, Dan. It, it's a it's a lovely contrast, isn't it, to the to the kind of slow, methodical sadness of the Ashes. This is this is this is classic T20, right? It's short bursts of just absolute chaos. Who knows? We could, you know, we could. The next game, I'm always expecting West Indies, you know, all, to be all out for 30, and England fail to chase it. That's the kind of vibe I'm that's getting. That's happening. This. That's happening once this series. West Indies out for 50. <laughs> I mean, they tried yesterday, but that's going to happen, and England will try hard as well. <laughs> um yeah it's interesting it's also you know worth adding the caveat that this is kind of you know the b team plus for england yeah, obviously we're missing we're missing those uh involved in the ashes and i think they're the fact we are missing the, the likes of stokes and butler their absence has been underlined in this series how, how crucial they are and the quality of those players in the you know in the kind of international t20 uh, kind of ecosystem england has some of the best players in the world and the fact that they're not involved like some of them are like rashid but the fact that all of them aren't yeah it's it's a, it is giving some of our backup brigade a chance to shine, but sadly, B, it's showing us that maybe they're not really good enough. <laughs> Can we trust the backup brigade? That's the big question. Uh, it is good to see the likes of Dawson and Banton, who seem to be carrying the drinks perpetually, actually get a game of cricket, and we can see if they're any good or not. Um, Reese Topley as well, who really impressed in the second T20 yesterday, bowled really nicely. Um, you know, let's start. We're going to go to England worries, though, because that's what we do as an English centric podcast. Um, they're death bowling. And will the end of the second T20 yesterday was crazy. The last over went for 29 runs and 
England only won by one run, despite West Indies falling to about 50 for six, I think. And Morgan explicitly said at the top of the first T20 that he wants to start uh, batting first, setting a total and defending it. Uh, it's happened twice and, and we nearly failed the second time and the first time was down to the batters. But what do you think to England's death bowling? Is is this a genuine worry? Uh, worry? Because that was a chaotic last few overs. West Indies should never have got that close. And what if this happens in a World Cup and we embarrass ourselves? Which would be a repeat of three months ago. And and, <laughs> and that's fair enough. No, it, it was absolutely bizarre. I, I have to admit, I sort of stopped watching about halfway through the West Indies innings because I thought, that oh, this is done. Yes. <laughs> Got other stuff to do before bed. Went upstairs, kept track of the score um, and sort of couldn't believe what I was watching. T- to end up winning by only one run is like degrees of catastrophe worse than it should have been. Um, I know lots of England players have come out and, and um, said nice things about Mahmood in the aftermath, which I think is fair enough. It's not a pattern of bad death bowling yet, I suppose, is the plus side. I'm with Glenn on this. I'm enjoying the chaos. And can I say, while we're here, the best moment of the series so far has been the sound of Chris Jordan's bat. That was some six, wasn't it? It was outrageous. Yeah, either the sound of Chris Jordan's bat or the absolutely ludicrous run out of Dawson in the first game where he <laughs> hit the ball straight to the fielder, really softly straight to the fielder and then fell over <laughs> trying yeah, to get back. Yeah, I'll have one there. I'll have one there. Topley had a great run out as well. Yeah, he was great, actually. He was great at the top. We 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 didn't pick him in the first and we didn't have a swing bowler when we probably needed one. And he really utilised that well. And I think he's now like, the new David Willey, maybe, who I think's now sort of worked his way out of selection and is that left arm swing bowler that we'll probably mistreat for a while. Well, I've got one little Reese Topley um, story. I can't, I know Zach was with me. I can't remember if one of you two was. He did walk past us in the in the tube station next to the Oval this summer, and he's very tall. So there's my the, my nugget of story from Reese Topley. That he is, walked straight past us. And that is rain stop play analysis for you. I think he was out <laughs> injured and he was at whatever underground stations near the oval which i think is just called yeah, oval called right which oval. it's just it's just called oval <laughs> Some quality analysis. that's why people come to us <laughs> but you're welcome sticking, sticking with the cricket i think yeah the batting to be fair the batting as well i haven't been convinced by it um obviously obviously it goes without saying that the, the, the first game was a complete shambles so i'm actually more inclined to have a quick look at the you know the scorecard for the second game which was obviously far closer as will rightly said that it should have been you know, Roy's obviously he is one of the one of the, the elite players, you could argue. And obviously he did get the innings going pretty quickly yesterday. But Banton, again, I was I really, really would just look just for him. I would love to see him get a nice big score. I hope they persevere with him um, throughout the series. I guess I don't see why they wouldn't. Um, Vince doing Vince things in the middle. Uh, Moeen kind of stepped up and looked really good for the majority of his innings um, yesterday. And it, I think every, there was a collective sigh, I think, among England fans when he did get out because he was looking quite sharp. So it's good to see Moeen um, looking good there. I, you know, I think four might be a, a pretty good position for him. Billings, I do want to point out, I have been a bit disappointed by his batting. It's, he's been lovely behind the stumps. We've all got to appreciate that. But some of his dismissals, I mean, that stumping especially was was just a little bit sloppy. I, I, as It must be strange. Sometimes I feel like watch a wicketkeeper get stumped and that must be like doubly annoying for some reason. <laughs> it just really, really pissed them off. Um, and then obviously you're into the tail. But I do think it's worth pointing out that, yeah, Jordan's batting has been superb. And although he hasn't met his best with the ball, he has put on serious runs in both games so far. So it's great to see him deliver coming in at the top of that tail. Yeah, I think echoing that, sorry, Somerset, Tom Banton's performances so far are probably one of the big disappointments because he, he looked so good for his 24-ish or whatever it was um, last night. He played like three or four reverse sweeps in a row and then just got out to a really soft one that he shouldn't have. And, and it, exactly as Glenn said, he needs that one big score to really make his mark in international cricket, or, or I sort of suspect we might not see him for a while. I think there's a lot of goodwill for Tom Banton, though. I think between between us as a part, and I think generally within cricket fans, we want to see him do well because we know what he can do. We've seen him do it for Somerset. We just want to see him do it in England shirt. And that is either... It's probably just a mental barrier he needs to get past. So you're right, Will. Just, just one score should do him. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it is a worry. And I know he had uh, one or two really spectacular innings uh, in this blast just gone. But I, before that, I don't think he was anywhere near his best. And he's actually really struggled for form across formats for Somerset, uh, for consistency in the very least. He's always got a massive innings in him, right? That's why we love Tom Banton. And when that innings comes, it is as good cricket as a fan, as an England or Somerset fan, as you will ever see. He hit an absolutely extraordinary 100 in the blast last season. But the problem is... They seem to be coming fewer and far between and are filled with these kind of, you know, just just kind of hit hard and get out. Sometimes I feel with Banton, he feels like he has to start so quickly. He puts pressure on himself. Um, and, and that's tricky. Whereas Jason Roy, especially yesterday, right, he did take a few balls to get in. He did take his time because he is confident in himself and in his place in the team. And, yeah, I think he looked good for that 25. Well, and I, it was a real shame, you know, as a caught and bowl by Allen that he didn't just just kick on. And hopefully... Let's let's give him the time. Let's give him the next couple of days and see what he can do. There's no no reason at all. It made absolutely no sense. Uh, hopefully there isn't any plan to rotate him out. But yeah, come on, come on, Tom. This is a good. This is a great opportunity. Butler's away. Stokes are away. Some world class players, as I mentioned, are, are absent with good reason from this team. So put your stamp on the team for for England and Somerset because I'd love him to be in great form come in a couple of months' time come the season. Um, but it is a it is a cause of worry. I do agree with Will. Yeah, he should definitely get the next three games at least. And, you know, when's he ever going to get a chance to open five in a row with no Butler, no Bess and no Stokes, like you said, Glenn? So, and maybe that's part of his issue. He's sort of itching and, and he's fully conscious of this opportunity and, and what it might mean for his career. Uh, maybe he could bat in Owen Morgan's position though, because Owen Morgan it just it looks so, he's such an ugly starter. And I know he came in in the middle of a collapse and I know he got bowled out for 104, but gee, 17 off 29. I don't think he hit the, the ball hit the bat for eight deliveries. He kept trying to cut things that were near his throat. And I was like, mate, try a different shot. He was winding me up massively. So my theory is we give him the role of, of CEO of the ECB, retire him, give him the, cause he seems like a great guy, good mind. He's guided a lot of good things in his cricket. And then, you know, we can actually relinquish him from batting, which he looks like he's not very good at anymore. I don't know what people think about Morgan in general. I'm not saying he's going to get dropped and he's definitely not because he's our captain. I know all that, but it feels like with all the other options in the middle order, people that can bowl and can bat, Morgan kind of hogs up a place in there as specialist captain. I agree. I think, yeah, his batting has, has left him in recent months and probably at this point, at least over a year. That's sad to see. I would be, I wouldn't necessarily off the bat want to integrate him straight into a administrative role. It, what I do, what worries me about Morgan, I, I obviously, I really like the bloke. I think he's as good a captain as England will ever see in, in the history of limited um, overs cricket. But uh, yeah, I am concerned. He does feel a little bit too institutionalised already. He is their kind of propaganda mouthpiece for the hundred, for everything good the ECB's doing. You know, he he said what yesterday or the day before. You know, it's completely it's ludicrous or whatever for any Ashes blame to be attributed to the hundred at all. And you know, he 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 has every right to say his opinion. But for me, he feels like a bit of a institutional mouthpiece and maybe the kind of person we should be turning away from, looking towards growing the game. Let's give him a coaching role then. Can we meet, let's meet halfway and. Just- just, uh, I think he'd be a good coach, right? I think he'd be better at that. Okay, cool. Let's agree at that. Is there anyone for either of you who's jumped out from a West Indies perspective? I do feel bad. I know we're England-centric, but we should at least oh, acknowledge <laughs> they, they battered us in the first game. <laughs> I like Hussain, the spinner. Yeah, he took that worldy catch at the World Cup, and he's sort of one of those spinners who just like bowls basically medium pace off like a two-step run-up. And he's got that like swinging arm ball, which I love. Um, I think that's pretty good. But I thought Cottrell and Holder opening in the first T20, when there's a bit of swing about those two are as dangering, a dangerous opening pair as, as as there is in world cricket, I think, with, with the ball in T20 cricket. It's just they don't quite, I think Zach said this last week, they don't quite back it up second change and with the spinner who, who looks okay. So I don't know, but it's West Indies and they, they battered us in the first game and then looked like they're going to get bowled out for about 15 in the second. So... This is them. Okay, so three more T20s to come in that series, and then we'll have a little break, and then the Test series will start in March. Um, so look out for them. All the coverage on BT Sport if you're in the UK. Right, let's go around the grounds and India versus South Africa. This series is finished now, the ODI series and that whole tour. In fact, what was quite an entertaining tour. Uh, South Africa won the ODI series three nil. Uh, Zach, who isn't here to defend himself, thinks that they're going to win the World Cup now, which is a huge shout. But I do want to start with what went wrong for India, Will, because I didn't actually watch, I didn't watch much of the series at all. Um, and you'd normally expect India to at least pick up a game 
in any series they play. Uh, so to lose this 3-0 away from home with what was a pretty strong side, I'm a bit confused. So can you help us with what went wrong for India? It's a very depressing tour overall now as an India fan. It, <laughs> it felt like if you, as I said, I think on the previous pod, if they'd, if they'd got the test win in South Africa on the back of what they did in England and Australia, that's an unbelievably successful year. And now suddenly it feels like the wheels have come off. Um, not quite as badly as England by any means. That's 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 reassuring. Um, but there are little problems there. Selection is an issue. So in, in th- at least three different departments. One, the spinners aren't taking wickets at all, which is a bit of an alarming thing. I mean, we've spoken before about there's this sort of mystery of where is Kuldeep Yadav and, and what cupboard is he locked in at the BCCI? So I'll give, I'll give you some, some numbers, for example. So the last time in, uh, we're in South Africa, admittedly, they played a six game ODI series. So bigger sample size, as Zach would say. But that was the peak of the Kuldeep and Jahel partnership with the spin, right? Jahel took 16 wickets and Kuldeep 17. This time around, from the whole spin department in India, over three ODIs, Ashwin's taken one wicket, Yuvija held two, and Giant came in for the last one and did nothing. So that's three wickets from your spinners all series. So that's a huge problem, and I don't know where Kuldeep is. Second problem, opening. So obviously Rohit Sharma's out injured. That's obviously a huge problem. Kale Rahul was batting around four, five, six was doing very well, averaged about 45 over seven or eight ODIs in the last year. Because Rohit Sharma was out and Kale Rahul's captaining the side, they promoted him up to open and he did not do very well. Got one half century, but then scores of 12 and nine either side of that. So that was probably a mistake. You could have just kept him in the middle order and given one of the youngsters a go at the top. The other massive, massive problem, and I'm going to say that because these are my two favourite players, but there was no Hardik and no Jadeja. And those are huge, huge misses from a perspective of lower middle order runs, which meant that you were having Deepak Jahar, who did really, really well with the bat. But he was coming in at seven and we essentially have four number 11s from the bowlers. So if that's the end of your batting, that's a huge problem. Shardot Akur likewise did quite well with the bat, but was coming in at seven. If those guys are your eight and nine, that's fine. But there was just an extremely long tail and not enough from the top and middle order to cover for that. So, so was this a series where India just sort of experimented with some ideas and some players and some positions, or was this like just a genuine set of performances with a few players missing? What, what do you think to that? I think injuries were a problem. I think it, I think it was enforced changes more than experimenting, but it kind of exposed a lack of depth in the way that lots of us didn't think existed. Like I remember we said before, especially after England were touring India, that we seem to have this sudden plethora of spinners who can bat really well. Um, and suddenly none of them were. I mean, Axar is injured and Jadeja is injured. Ashwin needed a good series, I think, for his place to be cemented and didn't have it at all. Um, similar to the Kohli captaincy situation, there are sort of overlapping politics with form with injuries in a way that doesn't help selection. So I think they felt the need to back Hale Rahul opening because he opens in T20s now and he's the captain and that was completely needless. Hardik isn't here because essentially he pretended that he was fit for the World Cup and wasn't and now they don't trust him anymore yeah. <laughs> um, and then you don't really give other people the chances so, so Venkatesh was the one who should have this should have been his series um, new to the ODI side does that kind of hardick role bats pretty well bowls okay in one of the ODIs he didn't bowl a single over so as you're ba- as you're bowling all rounder that's not a, ideal they've been batting him about six where he opens in T20s that's a more natural role for him and then they shipped him out for the third ODI. So whereas he is kind of, as we said with Banton, could really have benefited from come in. Here's your whole series. That's your role. Have fun. And they didn't do that. And they kind of messed it around in ways that were pretty needless. But we should absolutely say big congrats to South Africa. I don't know if I go as hard on them as Zach did, but um, they look a very, very competent side. Yeah, just I think that was a really in, uh, interesting summary. Thanks for that, Will. And just a couple of things jumped out. Um, so, you know, quotes from Rahul after the series ended, obviously standing captain, as we mentioned. Um, he said, it's quite obvious where we've gone wrong and it's for everyone to see. Our shot selection has been really poor as batsmen and our bowlers weren't hitting the good areas consistently. We need to look at ourselves in the mirror and have some hard conversations. So, yeah, pretty to the point there. Kind of like the opposite of Silverwood uh, holding hands and dancing around <laughs> after England was steamrolled. Uh, I, I quite like that. I think there was at least an honesty there. Um, and it sounds from what you said, well, I have unfortunately didn't get near seeing this series with the time difference, but it, it sounds very, very, um, very similar to what you said. Also, talking of people, you know, um, you know, um, 
maybe turning around um, their careers or, or, or big changes in a couple of weeks. Um, de Kock has gone from zero to hero for South Africa. So obviously left the um, left the team in disgrace um, just uh, just a couple of um, couple of weeks ago um, in a different format. Comes into this, was man of the match for the final game, uh, was man of the series as well, and hit 229 runs over the three matches, which especially in one day cricket is a real good achievement. So interesting to see him turn things around. Um, but yeah, it seems like... South Africa have taken this opportunity and excelled, uh, whereas, well, as you, as you nicely put, there was an opportunity um, similar to England in West Indies. The door has cracked open for some players. A great chance to demonstrate why you should be part of the setup hasn't really worked out. And 3-0 on top of the disappointing real tail off they had to the test series, it, it sums up a really poor tour i think for india especially with you know the Kohli and stuff in the in the background it feels like on the pitch and off the pitch it seems like a real struggle of a, a real rough start to the year i think for for india yeah and we'll let zach defend his south africa are going to win the world cup shout next week when he's back uh but i i'm not far off him listen they've got those i can't remember the averages all the actual people at the minute but i think there's three batters in the top five that average over like 60 so milan uh van der dussen and bavuma maybe let's say i don't know They've got a really nice top order, a great balanced bowling attack, a good spin bowler in Maharaj. And I think Shamsi might play a few ODIs. I don't know where he's at quite in that system. But similar to the test team, this feels like a really ascending period for South Africa now. And I think they're working themselves into a place where they could be pretty dangerous in all three formats for, for two or three years with this squad. So keep an eye out for them. So uh, where are India off to next, Will, after, after this pretty poor tour of South Africa? They are back home to India. Pretty quick turnaround, though. They're then doing um, a short format series, three ODIs and three T20s with the West Indies. Um, that's kicking off on Sunday, the 6th of February. A very quick turnaround. And then the West Indies will fly back to the West Indies to play some test cricket against England. This this is quick, this is the cricket schedule now, Will. This is how it is. I know you hate it, but it's how it's going. I hate, uh, it. We'll... I hate everything about it. <laughs> we'll continue around the grounds then and chat a bit about the women's ashes, which unfortunately has been a bit of a non-starter due to weather. Uh, Australia won the first T20 despite England's highest opening partnership in Australia from this tour. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the next two T20s have been rained off, which leaves us with Australia leading 4-2 on points. Uh, the test match will start on Thursday this week, which is worth four points. So if England can win that, they can go ahead. Um, the second T20, we saw 4.2 overs before washout, uh, but that was enough for Sophie Eccleston to get her 50th international cap. Well done to her. She's still very young as well, so she's got a, a long career left ahead of her. Uh, Elise Perry was dropped for the two matches, which was a shock, I think, to everybody. Uh, we'll expect her back for the test matches, though. Um, she's pretty prolific against England as well. Uh, she's hit 213 not out, 116, and an unbeaten 76 in her previous three innings against England. She's like the Steve Smith, Labashain era of, of women's cricket. It's frightening. Uh, she averages 78 in eight games against Heather Knights, England. Um, she's also taken 31 wickets at an average of 18. She she's does she does everything. So she'll be back, firing, rested, ready to go. Uh, so good luck to England in that test match, which starts on Thursday. Hopefully get some cricket. Uh, UK time, it's starting about 11 o'clock at night and, and going through into the early hours of the morning. Uh, so look out for that. Right, before we end part one, we're going to pass on to Zach, who's not here, but he's recorded a, a lovely little voice note for us to keep you updated on the Under-19 World Cup. So, Zach, after you. Sorry I couldn't make the pod today. So, the Under-19 World Cup. The group stages drew to a close this week. In Group A, we had England going 3-3 three from three to top their group and set up a quarter-final with South Africa on Wednesday. It's going to be a juicy tie. This included an unbeaten 154 from 119 balls for England captain Tom Prest. Certainly one to look out for in the future. Bangladesh finished second in this group, winning their last two games and will face favourites India in the quarterfinals. In Group B, as mentioned, surprise, surprise, India won three from three. And in their third game of the group, they racked up a mammoth 405 against Uganda with Raj Bawa top scoring, hitting 162 not out from 108 balls. This kid also bowls seam, by the way, so want to keep an eye on for the IPL auction upcoming. The other team to go through in this group, as mentioned, will be England's opponent, South Africa. England will be hoping to get some early wickets and try to expose Dewalt Brevis to the new ball, who's been in imperious form, passing 50 in every game so far, including 100. 
Salafaraws have a strong pace attack led by one Matthew Boast, who is a very imperious figure standing at over six foot four and taking a few wickets every now and again as well. Group C's table toppers were Pakistan, who apart from a close game against Afghanistan where they struggled against the quality spin attack have looked imperious so far. Their batting has looked very good, although they've been quite slow on the block so far. So I think their quarterfinal opponents, Australia, will be looking to restrict them to a lower score and hope to knock it off quickly. Afghanistan finished second in this group and will face Sri Lanka in the quarterfinals. Afghanistan's bowling attack led by Noor Ahmad has been their strong suit. The batting is a worry and I do think they will struggle against a very strong Sri Lanka side. The group of death has been was very excited and that was what group D was known as. With West Indies, one of the major nations and hosts of this tournament, missing out on qualification for the Super League stage. Fear not though, all the teams that have gone out are not, the tournament's not over. Every team enters the plate competition to decide who wins that and then that decides your qualification for the next time. So West Indies will be one of the favourites in coming into the plate competition. Sri Lanka topped this group and they've got a very strong side and one of the kind of leaders of this side is slow left armour Denith Welalage who has continued his brilliant U30 I form from 2021 and has taken 13 wickets and is currently the leading wicket taper taker in the tournament. Australia finished second in this group and their opener Teague Wiley has only been dismissed once so far and has scored 193 runs in their three group stages. I'm sure you'll all be happy to hear my predictions for the semi-finalists are still on with my prediction of England, India, Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Although I think South Africa and Australia might have something to say about that. The quarterfinals start on Wednesday with plate games going on today and throughout as well. And I think there's one quarterfinal a day up until Saturday and then the tournament finishes on the 5th of October. So plenty to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks. Lovely. Thank you very much, Zach. That's the Under-19 World Cup. Uh, and that's also the end of part one. In part two, we'll take a look at the news and we'll have our pitch. Welcome back to part two of this week's Rain Stop Play. Uh, we're going to do our pitch inspection now, which for, for new listeners... Uh, it's basically a, a deep dive in, into an article we found particularly interesting this week. We'll link it in the description of the pod so you can go and read it yourself. So I recommend you pause now, go and read this piece. It's a couple of minutes long. Come back and we'll have a chat about it. And we'll chat a little bit wider about uh, the topic this week as well. It's about the the price of cricket, well, especially in England at the minute, which has sort of come to the top of the news cycle because of England's failings in test cricket in Australia and whether we are giving all of the talent available in the UK the ability to go and play cricket and become the, the best in the country at all. Um, so this piece is in BBC Sport um, and it's, it's chatting about Matt Pryor and Jonathan Trott have been in the media a lot this week talking about, you know, how much they're paying for their kids to go and play cricket at the minute. Uh, Rob Key's got stuck into this as well. So give us a little summary of this piece and um, we can chat about what's been, you know, a really interesting topic for bubbling for a few weeks now. Yeah, it's been bubbling for a few weeks and it, and it feels like it's really got some momentum in the, in the last few days. As you said, quite a lot of big name figures talking about it. So, yeah, we've got a pitch inspection this week. It's a BBC sport piece uh, with some quotes from Matt Pryor. So he, he basically says, and this is pretty damning, I think, although we kind of know it intuitively. He says, in simple terms, you're not selecting the best, most talented cricketers. You're selecting the ones that can afford it. So he says the average cost is about a thousand pounds per child each season for youth pathway cricket. So that's 400 to 450 pounds coaching, 300 pounds kit and then travel. And Rob Key um, did similar um, numbers. He spoke on Sky about this. His daughter's in the Kent pathway and he totted up everything that he was paying for and said it was something like 750 pounds per season, not including travel to games or bat and pads. So basically about a thousand pounds per kid in the in the professional pathways. Um, and it's interesting that it's kind of coming out now, not sort of in relation to any particular story, like the way that Azim Rafiq kicked off a discussion about racism, but just, as you say, kind of bubbling away for a long time, but nice that it's now fully coming into the open for a conversation. Yeah, really interesting to see how this has just become a bit of a story. It feels like uh, ex-professionals and fans are just genuinely angry at the the poor quality of of players we're producing at test level, especially for the men's team. And just taking a look, and we've spent the last few months taking stock of English cricket, and this is a big problem within it. Um, it's interesting that Pryor says later in this piece how he has gone to his former county Sussex over and over again to sort of highlight these issues, but it's fallen on deaf ears. 
uh, they do get a quote from Rob Andrew, uh, the CEO of Sussex, who's just sort of, it's a bit of guff really about what we do and blah, 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 and everyone can get into it. So it does feel like this is something that the counties really want to back off from, especially at a time when we're talking about getting rid of counties and cutting funding here. They, they're like, oh, we can't afford to to, to supplement this as well. Um so it's again a battle between pundits and fans and counties there's a lot of pushing and pulling going on in English cricket at the minute yeah it's a really good piece and I'm glad we're talking about it and uh, yeah as you said you know on BBC there's some really interesting quotes in there you've obviously got the the kind of disgusted uh former players uh, you know the, the timing is intriguing for me because it's not as if this is new news to basically anyone most of all the players themselves you know they have been involved in obviously as professionals in this cricket um ecosystem for for, for so long and I, I i'm intrigued is it because their kids perhaps it probably is their kids are just at that age right now where they do have to fork out the money and they're like hold on it, it is a it is a pooling. <laughs> uh but yeah again you know it's it's quite interesting you know i I definitely obviously think we shouldn't be not that i think we're doing it on the pod but pundits whoever else shouldn't be you know approaching this as you know race is one issue class is another it's clearly intersectional right it clearly overlaps and intersects um and that's also important to note and the penny seems to be slowly dropping i mean you know when you know graham swan joins the pylon on twitter saying it's atrocious i'm like okay cool what what have you done to help any other injustice in the game in your many years as a there's the face of english cricket i'm like maybe, maybe you can keep that to yourself swanny but what is a good thing what is a good it just really annoyed me but what is good is that we are having people who the way the celebrity, you know, professional media system we have, people do listen to ex-pros. That's just a fact. I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. That is a fact. And the, and that we do have so many people kind of joining this conversation now is great. It's pressing. Um, and it is long overdue that we're having these conversations. I'm glad, Dan, that you picked out that quote from um, Sussex Cricket, Cricket's chief executive officer. The title in itself gives you some indication as to <laughs> how far they can under, understand class injustice, I imagine, at Sussex Cricket Club. Um, but yeah, Rob Andrew clearly seems like the Star Wars villain here. He's like, well, it costs us money. I'm not fitting the bill. It's like, great, mate, you're very much part of the problem here. Um, so yeah, lots to dive into. Cracking piece of journalism. Um, I do want to point out it was Laura Scott who wrote this at BBC. So shout out to her for some great work. And I think this links nicely into the special pod you guys worked on that came out on Friday. Shameless plug for our own work, but it is a fantastic interview with Duncan Stone sort of talking about these wider issues and and what I loved about it, the interview so much was talking about, you know, the sort of social history of cricket and that it, we are in danger of falling out of national sport territory, aren't we? We're, you know, losing, I think, Glenn, you mentioned American sports, which become way more accessible. Um, I don't want to see cricket lose this. And this is the whole accessibility of it. And like you said, it's intersectional between race and class. And we are becoming more aware of it now, which is great to see. But one worry I had after the interview with Duncan Stone was what are we going to do about it? Because you had a great chat about what the issues are. I think we know what it is. But where do we go from here? Apart from abolish the ECB, which was a sort of great uh, moniker for that for that episode. But I, I'm a bit worried. It's all well and good. We're talking about it now. And it's good that the penny is slowly dropping, as you said, Glenn. But I'm worried that it's still going to take too long. And by then, cricket's fallen out of everyone's consciousness. Well, yeah, I think I think that's a very um, valid point, Dan. Yeah, you know, glad you brought it up. Yeah, I think it's also worth outlining that we are past the tipping point, right? That was definitely uh, an issue that came up in in our interview and in our discussion afterwards with with Duncan. That we have gone past this tipping point. You know, cricket has been off terrestrial TV without going into this too much because definitely listen to the pod. It was it was a great chat, but we you know we've lost cricket on terrestrial TV. You know, it, the 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 the, the money you need to access the game. Uh, Pryor had a great quote. He said cricket already has many barriers. You can't have the jumpers for goalposts, dot, 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 stumps, bats, access. There are so many barriers. So, yeah. So you at the minute, right, um, you can't really watch much cricket if you turn on free TV. You can't pick up uh, a ball and bat the same way that you can, you know, a football, at least in the UK. Um, I know there's other adaptions to the game, especially in countries like India, Pakistan, where street cricket is so popular. But that it, we, we seem to be lacking that in the UK, um, really, uh, especially in terms of growing the game beyond that. Um, so, yeah, if you're, you know, low income, low income individual, you know, young person in the UK, you want to be playing the game. You can't seem to watch it. The the, the cost of kit costs loads. The actual um, 
coaching cost a sack onto itself. Barrier, barrier, barrier. So, yeah, I agree, Dan. We, you probably, you know, probably tackle them one at a time. I don't think there's going to be one regulation or rule that magics this up. I think Duncan did point out that we, we need a government very much unlike this one that is on our side as fans and players as uh, you know communities that seems to be some sort of government oversight regulation that's positive but i think it is important that ex pros do use their platform their bully pulpit to bring this up right they have access to media that we whether it's our podcast or people talking our pub don't have so we need to get a raising awareness it's a cliche but at least on the first steps these conversations are good ones they're not fixing anything right now but at least they're happening yeah, spot on. And, and the, it's the fact that it's the likes of Rob Key and Matt Pryor and, and Graham Swan, and I'm prejudging them slightly having never met them, but it's people like that actually speaking out where they could, you know, they're in their jobs with Sky and they got all their media jobs. They could easily sit back and go, ah, it's not my problem. They are coming out and speaking about it. And and they can afford this as well. It's not actually hurting them, but they are acknowledging that it's a, it's a serious problem. We referenced our interview with Duncan Stone. That podcast came out on Friday. We're going to play sort of five minutes of that interview now, what we thought were the, were the best parts. If you've already listened, you can fast forward five minutes and we'll jump into the news. The conclusion that my research led me to is that the culture of cricket in England was essentially the same nationwide, uh, irrespective of class, up to uh, essentially the First World War. And but what had been happening in the decades from the late Victorian and Edwardian period up to that point had been the recognition by the middle and upper classes that socially open meritocratic competition uh, threatened their position in society. You know, we talk of sport being the great social leveller. Now, if there's one thing that the middle and upper classes of this country detest, it is meritocracy. One of the really interesting parts of that in your book is is how you show that that divide between amateur and professional was always kind of arbitrary and deliberately used by the establishment, for want of a better word, to exclude certain people. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I mean, the idea, for example, that W.G. Grace was never making any money from cricket. Oh, he was making more money than pretty much everyone else uh, put together. Uh, so yes, it, all, this banning of competition and the strict control of um, the professionals who are obviously invariably working cl- class men, uh, this led to essentially the fetishization of what was presented as a philosophy of amateurism, where in fact it was an ideology. Uh, which was solely designed to justify the separation of the classes. Um, lots of people have been pointing out the increasing um, homogeneity of the England test team, um, something that's not new. We're all quite aware of this. Um, nearly all of the players um, are from a handful of private schools. Um, this is a culture, obviously, that your book deals with quite extensively. Um, what is behind this, um, I guess, continuation? And in your opinion, do you think it's getting worse? Yes, I do think, uh, you know, the overrepresentation of the privately educated has always been an issue within certain sports, uh, you know, probably most notably rugby union. I mean, that's the whole reason why rugby split into two um, was because of class conflicts along those lines. Uh, but since 1979, I would argue that this situation across all aspects of British society has got worse. Uh, because what we've know, what we've witnessed uh, is that uh, consecutive governments have been steadily hollowing out civil society. A lot of the pillars that enabled working class people to participate in society no longer exist. And that happened within cricket with deindustrialization and the privatization of previously nationalized industries such as coal. And that led to, uh, even in my experience at Surrey Police, uh, the end of workplace sport uh, and the selling off of thousands of playing facilities that were, you know, valuable yet unprofitable assets. In some ways, the, the answer to some of the things that you're talking about there in terms of accessibility of the game, the answer to that from people like the ECB is more and more competitions like the 100, which 
and yet at the same time what struck me reading your book is that if you like the old elite in cricket said they hated commercialism and wanted to keep it their gentleman's amateur game the new elite seems obsessed with wringing as much money out of the game as possible and yet neither of them seems to represent the grassroots and the actual recreational game yeah it's we've swapped one form of elitism for another so whereas you know Pelham Warner you know Lord Harris Lord Hawke those that generation of uh, Victorian and Edwardian gentlemen amateurs would want nothing to do with commercialism I would argue they actively made the game less popular in order to just protect their own the main thing is is to have some form of authenticity you know because if it's out if it's out of the back pocket you know if some marketeer has written it on the back of an envelope it's not going to fly no matter how much money you throw at it there's a final question uh, we're going to ask all of our guests this um if you could change just one thing about english cricket what would it be that's well i know what the resulting i know what i want i want the england cricket team to be full of you know to reflect british society there's a lot of things that need to happen <laughs> in order for that to happen so there's no one thing um, except, all right, OK, if abolish the EB, ECB. There you go. <laughs> Brilliant. So you can go listen to the rest of that podcast. It's on our feed, wherever you get your podcast. You'll find that full interview with Duncan Stone. Thank you for him for joining us. That was a really, really interesting and, and, and thoughtful sort of 40 minutes or so. So well done on that, boys. Um, right. News, cricket news to wrap up as we head toward the end of this podcast the IPL. I called it I called it omnipresent at the top, Will. Omnipotent, omniscient. I fell out with it last year. Trying to get excited this year. And I think I am because there's two new franchises. There's this Uber super auction that I'm quite excited about. So I think I'm ready to embrace the IPL again. But could you give us a quick update of what's going on? We've got the two new franchises. One's got a name now. Some England players are going into the draw. What's happening? Update us all. So for the, for the background of all of this, there is a mega auction coming up February the 12th. Before that, the two new franchises were allowed to pick three players each before any of the other teams got to pick. Um, and it does line up quite nicely. should be quite entertaining. So as I say, Ahmedabad will be captained by Hardik Pandya and Lucknow captained by KL Rahul. Um, Lucknow have also got uh, Ravi Bishnoi and Marcus Stoinis. Ahmedabad will have Shubman Gill and Rashid Khan. So... Both of those look pretty tasty. Interestingly, both pretty much took identical positions. They took a kind of steady opener, a late finisher, supposedly all-rounder, um, and an elite spinner. So immediately you'd have thought both of those should be pretty up there with the favourites for this tournament. Extraordinarily, nobody took Ishan Kishan. I can't believe he's going to the auction. Um, for me, if Lucknow had taken Ishkish instead of Stoinis, I think they would be my favourites. Um, but we'll get to see all of the rest of the team's um, as I say, February the 12th and the next season starting in March, I think. Uh, April 2nd, April 2nd, the season starts. Um, uh, so just interestingly, so these three teams, sorry, two teams could pick through any three players they wanted that weren't already claimed by the other 10 franchises. So they had the whole pool just to pick and choose and they went for these three. So it is interesting that that they went for that. And you're right, they've kind of gone for the same formula, haven't they? But Stoyness? Are we, are we all sure about that? As like, as like you can pick anybody you want and you've gone for Marcus Stoyan. It's not saying he's a bad cricketer, but you can pick anybody you want. And I think Ishkish is a great example of a potential miss there, Will. Yeah, he feels like the outlier in that list. Um, is there a case for it that I can make? He feels, like a, he feels like a $600,000 mid-price, mid-auction get to me. Yeah, and I think that's the other fine. thing you've got to think when you get a pick before everybody else, you've got to think who is going to be tough to get in an auction. I think Ishkish yeah. is going to, everyone's going to want a piece of Ishkish in the auction. I think Stoinis you could have probably got not that hard. Um, and also he, Ishkish and more clearly fit the bill that I think they've tried to go with, with the other picks, which is 
strong young domestic cores of Indian players who are going to be able to stick with the franchise for the long term. That seems to be the way that the whole process is moving. We're slightly moving away, I think, now in the IPL from the, the real sort of Galactico style. Like, let's just get in the Steve Smiths of the world and all the big stars internationally. I think teams are recognising, based on the success of Mumbai, that the template is very strong Indian core that you can get pretty cheaply in an auction and sign up for years to come and improve together as a unit and just supplement that with the key pieces that you need internationally. That's great. And that's something to really look out for um, when the auction comes around on February the 12th. So 30 England players are in the mix. And that's despite Joe Root, Ben Stokes, Josh Butler, uh, Sam Curran all ruling themselves out through injury or otherwise or wanting a rest or focusing on the cricket. Uh, 1,124 players in total have declared themselves, which is a ridiculous number of people to go up for an auction. And correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but each franchise basically started again right and they picked they've all got three they've all got three players under their belt now correct so they were all allowed to retain four um three didn't want to try to get rid of everybody that's (laughs) inevitably rajasthan as well as rcb and sunrisers they've sorry they got they got anybody or they just didn't go for the full four or they just done clean slate let's go again they've all got three Right. Job Kings really had a clear out. They've only retained two players. Everyone else is just gone. <laughs> Get rid of them. Um, the upshot of this is that there's a big divide in who's got money to spend at the auction and who hasn't. It's Sunrise or, Ch- or Chennai have got Ishin Kishan written all over them. Yeah, they're, they're sort of backloaded for the big players. I mean, expect to see that colour paddle a lot during the auction or something. I don't know. But that is, I'm, I am looking forward to the auction. I might not watch any of the tournament, but I will watch that auction because I find it a bit hilarious. Um, Craig Overton's also declared himself, which is funny, I think. Yeah, this is what I can't find. I can't find the full list. And I'd like everyone to make their most rogue guess. Who are these 30 England players? <laughs> I mean, I don't like I, I'm trying to think of the obvious. I can't think of the obvious Thorpe. ones yet. <laughs> you think Billings will go, you know, that again. lot. Is Milan having a go, try and get himself back in the team? Adil Rashid, maybe. But, like, Craig Overton, mate. Respect. Listen, if I play cricket at any level, I'd put my name in. See if someone picked me up. Sounds like a great six weeks. That's what I was going to say. Is that like, there's a difference between being made available. <laughs> like, I can make myself available. Just share my share my email address with the super giants or whatever. But... <laughs> But who's actually going to get picked i guess we need to we need like the available pool and the actual like desirable pool <laughs> break it down a little bit <laughs> i think we need that from the 1124 total people in it as well because that i don't know how they're going to work that out good luck to all the strategists uh so yes february 12th for that enjoy it uh, okay some more news that broke today actually uh, on monday the 24th uh glenn is brendan taylor who's going to get a ban uh, over delaying a report of spot fixing. So I think we saw this happen with Shaky Balasan where he didn't spot fix, but he got approached and failed to report it, which is in itself worth a ban. So update us on what's happening with this fairly fresh news story. Yeah, um, thanks, Dan. It's It's been a story that's been on the, the front page of most cricket outlets today, actually, which is why, you know, I think it's worth us spending just a couple of minutes just looking at it. Yeah, it, it's a really sad one, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, it's Brendan Taylor, um, you know, former... Uh, captain of Zimbabwe, uh, really, really high quality batter, um, fourth on the country's list of um, top scorers uh, in test cricket. So, you know, a really significant figure in um, Zimbabwe and while cricket. Yeah. So he revealed, strangely enough, like in a tweet today. Um, uh, and again, I, I will put a caveat that this is kind of ongoing. So maybe, you know, the, the, the stuff that we're reading from various sources at like Guardian, BBC, Al Jazeera have covered it. Um Take it maybe just with a little bit of pinch of salt, because at the minute this does seem to be his account of what happened. Um, but yeah, basically the ICC have um, imposed a multi-year ban. Uh, I don't think we know the specific amount yet on his international cricketing career, which is unfortunate. But yeah, the reason for this, it all gets a little bit uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy for me at the very least, because um, yeah, he he for, by his account right, he was um, he was asked to visit. Uh, India by Indian businessman to discuss uh, quotation sponsorships and the potential launch of a T20 competition in Zimbabwe. And he was advised, he says, that he'd be paid 15,000 for the journey. Uh, a couple of red flags there, right? So it already sounds just just a little bit a little bit strange. Obviously, that journey is not going to be worth $15,000 worth of his time. So so red flags are, are abound there. Um, it, this this invitation came when the team hadn't received salaries um, for half a year um, and there were 
concerns about the viability of continuing to play internationally. So, yeah, feels a little bit like a targeted individual and a targeted circumstance here, which is which is unfortunate. And he said on record that he was wary about the context of this, but took the trip all the same. Then it gets really uh, again, maybe a, a little bit, a little bit James Bond here. Um, so he says when he got there during drinks on the final night of this trip, um, he was offered cocaine, um, which and I quote again, um, he foolishly took the bait. So he he took um, a lot alongside drinking. He did um, some cocaine uh, with with apparently the these businessmen, which doesn't seem to be, you know, professional cricketer, um, doesn't seem to be a particularly uh, helpful thing to be doing. Uh, and then the final twist of the story, um, the following morning, right? So he's had a bit of a bender. He's had a bit of a rager with these businessmen uh, while, you know, discussing the the hundred in Zimbabwe or something along these lines, right? <laughs> um, the morning after, uh, the, the, the same men, he says, entered his hotel room and showed him a video uh, taken that night before of him doing the cocaine. So obviously something to blackmail him with. Um, and yeah, told him if he didn't spot fix an international match for them, that video would be made public. Um, he said he was cornered and then given that, it seems to be that $15,000 um, deposit to fix the matches. Um, strangely, he says he took that money so he could fly out. So it's, a bit, it's all a bit peculiar. Uh, I'm trying not to judge him as, as much as I, I this is this isn't me judging him at all. It's just it's a very bizarre story. I think it's fair to say. And one of the major points behind his ban and the issues is that it took him four months to report this to the ICC. Right. So it's unfortunate that it seems to be uh, he seems to have been somewhat coerced, misled into a situation potentially i know it's he is an autonomous person but potentially you know given a few too many drinks and and you know offered a of a banned substance um so yeah it feels like people were, were trying to really work him here and potentially take advantage considering you know the the circumstance of cricket in zimbabwe at the time so it was a real carrot right to dangle to get him out there again potentially um it took him four months which is at the crux of the problem for the icc um so they've um so they've said that's too long he is being very clear that he didn't actually fix any game so i want to make that very clear as well so that's what he was told to do he he, he says that he hasn't one more thing i do want to mention that, that al jazeera added um, on their report that um this admission that he's made this public story um comes a year after former zimbabwe uh, co coach heath streak was banned from all cricket um, for nearly 10 years for for eight years for breaching cricket's anti-corruption code and uh, yeah, this coach was suspended because of his relationship with an in Indian businessman who was looking for inside information for illegal betting purposes and allegedly bribe streak with gifts such as an iPhone and allegedly Bitcoin. So, again, a, a very hyper modern element to this. It, it's all you a offer bit, him, you offer him an NFT as well or something. Yeah, right. I want to say it's all a bit silly, but there are lives being involved and ruined here, um, which is which is very worrying. So I do I do have sympathy with Taylor. I do think, again, if his version of events, if we are to take them at face value, it seems very unfortunate. He is in the wrong. I do want to say that my, my sympathy doesn't ex extend so far that he clearly hasn't made a mistake here. But very, very shifty. Bit weird. I think if you look at what happened to Shakib, he got a year ban for failing to report match fixing and he didn't match fix. He failed to report. Uh, you'd expect that's a, that's a minimum for Taylor with the substance abuse and what else has gone on around this and the more information that might come out could be the end of his career him being 35 years old so something to look out for a bit strange a bit weird keep brian an eye out for it plenty of reporting going on there uh so thanks for that summary glenn um let's wrap up then with our tweet of the week and our tweet of the week this week is from the runout blog who posted this about an hour before we came to record actually and it's just a bit of fun really um don't know where whoever runs a runout blog we love the tweet bit random but you know we all need that on a monday afternoon um which of these two teams would would beat each other in, in a three test series uh, they'd play at old trafford in manchester perth and centurion uh these are the two teams we're going to run through them now we will link to this tweet in in our description if you want to go and look at it for yourself okay so team a K.R. Rahul, Dean Elgar, captain, of course. Labashane, Smith, De Silva, Pant Keeper, Holder, Khan, Norkia, Robinson, Shaheen Shahafridi. Pretty brutal 11. Team B, Rohit, Devon Conway, Williamson, Root, Fawad Alam, Ben Stokes, Mohamed Rizwan as keeper, Ravi Ashwin, Carl Jameson, Hazelwood, Hassan Ali. 
I, I don't know where to start. I think if you boys have both got a tweet in front of you, it's easier when you look at both these teams. But that mid, that Rohit, Conway, Williamson, Root, Alam, Stokes is your top six. Sounds lethal to me. Now, they are up against the best bowling side in Team A, I'd suggest, with Nokia, Shaheen, etc. So it's tricky, but I think that batting team just about creeps it for me. So I'm going Team B. I do know what I th- it, they've done well here the run out blog they've done very well they're, they're they're nice and evenly balanced teams I think I'm leaning team A because I just mm-hmm. I just think it's got I I think the top six you're correct I think they're more talented and they're more explosive in B but I like the ruggedness in A a little bit more <laughs> I like Elgar opening with Kale I think they're going to be sensible they're not throwing away any yeah. early wickets they're going to get got you 50 the, to 100 you've got the Labuschagne Smith double pivot in there as well at three and four which we know for a fact works so that's that, a bit that threatening t- team A is never getting you less than 300 runs ever and they've got a good enough bowling attack that they can restrict the other team okay okay but, but bear in mind you know Manchester Perth Centurion as well you know there's only one spinner in each of these teams so interesting Glenn yeah, I'm leaning with Will. I've actually I've had this tweet open for most of the episode. And I've changed my mind about five times. <laughs> it's really been done, as you said, Will. A lovely uh, balancing act here between the two. Uh, I worry that Team B's bowling is a little bit underbaked. If you take Stokes out of the equation, uh, just I think they're one quick short. If they had one more quick bowler who I trusted, like top top tier test level, like a Shaheen. Uh, or Nokia, I would go B, but I just think their bowling is fractionally light, mm. and I think Team A has the runs in them to 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 mitigate the batting as well, because Team B's top, you know, seven if you include Rizwan, that's fearsome, that's ridiculous. But I think they're stacked a bit too top heavy, and I think Team A is just more balanced. I think okay. whichever whichever team we throw Pat Cummins in would win. Oh, but since he's yeah. not there, both of these teams are just missing a Pat Cummins, aren't they? You use mm-hmm. someone in and out. That's great. Uh, go check that out for yourself at the Runout Blog. One on Twitter. You can go respond to them. Um, an interesting little thing to think about on a Monday afternoon. Why the heck not? Uh, right. As we always end our pods uh, with Zach's quick question. He's obviously not here today, but we do have the answer to last week's question. So last week's question was: Which other batters have averaged less than Ajinka Rahane and Pujara? since the start of 2020, having played 10 tests or more? Pretty wordy question, uh, but there it is. Uh, I can't remember if you got one on air or not, Will. I think we might have done it off air. Uh, No, it's on there. It's on the pod. We've got Ross and Chase. Oh, it was on air. So the one you were missing, I know you've been thinking about it all week, was Tom Blundell. And, I mean, niche, if you've pulled his name out of the bag, please tweet us at RainStopPod. I need to know. Glenn Space is saying, I barely know who that is. (laughs) <laughs> is that a kit man for someone <laughs> it's that creed of new zealand batter who bats between four and seven who you just forget yeah, ever played all cricket. The same person mate. so he averaged less i think uh both him and chase averaged somewhere around 18 uh so that was last week's quick question answered this week's quick question which you, you're going to go away with and we'll be back next week to answer is and boys we can we can have a little chat about this uh, live before, before we leave it to the listeners in the first ever Cricket World Cup in 1973, there were seven women's teams competing. These teams came from five nations. Can you name them? Now, I don't quite understand the question. It, does the UK count as one nation? It is, is, no. Do we get we clarif- clarification on that? I think Zach's given us a clarification. This is a fascinating question. I've asked for clarification. Apparently, the UK... It's not, don't get distracted by the red herring of the UK, I think. Okay. It's not like Scotland and Ireland are there, so that counts. Interestingly, Zach's given us a clue, which we don't normally get. He says two of the countries would now compete as one. But then I don't know if that means that there were seven teams competing. There were seven nations competing in 1973 by today's standards, or if that means there were seven nations at the time by 1973 borders. <laughs> oh, yeah, it could be a border thing. Because my first two thoughts were, could it be a UK thing, which it isn't? And this would make absolutely no sense. But could some of the West Indies constituent nations have played as yeah, different teams? Some of the island nations could have been separate teams. I don't know when the West Indies became the West Indies in a cricketing sense. I'm questioning um, my knowledge now. 1973. I'm thinking of could like there be colonial... a Pakistan Bangladesh issue. I'm thinking more colonial Africa sort of splitting in, in, in many ways in the 70s. Or am I a bit late for that? 
we're now getting into geopolitics oh, and borders here. And this I think, is beyond our knowledge. I, but I think Africa. I'm I'm gonna go go away this week and, and think about this. But I'm going down the Africa route. I think. But I think the West Indies and separate Caribbean islands could be a shout. But yeah, avoid UK as the red herring for listeners at home and enjoy that one. That could be a real thinker this week. Um, so one more time. In the first ever World Cup in 1973, there were seven women's teams competing. These teams came from five nations. Can you name them? Okay, that was Zach's quick question. question. It's a great question. Zach's got a lot of information at his fingertips and just I think in his brain as well. So it's a great question. He'll be back next week to answer that one. Uh, for now, thank you very much for listening. Glenn, good to have you back. <laughs> we'll speak to you yeah, next week. <laughs> this was a fun part. Thank you, mate. Will, see you next week, pal. See you next week. I'll be I'll be pondering this question the entire time until then. It'll keep yeah, you awake. <laughs> it'll keep you awake. And listeners, thank you for listening. Enjoy that question. You get the answer to that next week. Until then, goodbye. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.